to neurotypical society. It is important to me that my voice be one of importance, a voice that is not only heard, but one that is able to create change. It is important to me because I speak not just for myself, but for a whole community who are having to fight to be listened to, the autism community. Cultivating Justice, Cultivating Justice, Episode 4. We are not the burden that society has labelled us. We are held back by society because you think differently to us and that scares you. I am here to tell you that it is okay to be afraid but it is not okay to turn that fear into hate, anger, or prejudice. Take your fear, embrace it, and understand it. Overcome it and use it to learn, to educate yourself. It's not about what we are lacking. It's about the tools that society is lacking to accommodate our neurodivergent minds. We are not the first minority community to have to fight for our rights and we won't be the last. These battles are ongoing and seem to be indefinite, but the world should not be this way. No one should have to fight to be treated fairly. Stand up for autistic rights. Welcome Welcome to Cultivating Cultivating Justice. Justice. Before we start this episode, a heads up that it includes references to anxiety, depression, grief, and experiences of ableism, as well as descriptions of self-harm and autism meltdown. Please take care as you listen. And just to let you know, there are also a few swear words in this one. I'm Hester Russell, and I'm a grower and organiser for Out on the Land, or UTL. I'm also involved in a new and emergent union of land-based employees. And I'm Zoe Miles. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a grower too, also part of UTL, and I'm part of the same emerging union, The music you're hearing right now is a track called Beautiful Gizzard by Jazz Buck, aka Guest, and Harry Biles. It's made from recordings of a wormery and a compost heap in East London. And the clips we heard at the start of this episode are taken from an open letter to neurotypical society written by Natalie Tamburini. You can find the full letter in the show notes for this episode, and we'd really, really encourage you to read it. We're going to hear more from Natalie in a moment. She'll be talking about an experience she had when she was working on a farm, and she'll also be sharing some of her ideas to make farms and workplaces in general more just, accessible and inclusive. We'll also be hearing from Maggie Cheney of Rocksteady Farm in upstate New York. Maggie will be talking about how they put care at the centre of their work and how doing that can be one way of queering our approach to land work. Feedback is a campaign group that's working to regenerate nature by transforming our food system. 
One of their projects is something called EcoTalent. It's an internship scheme for young people who are passionate about the environment, but feel that their background or their life experience is stopping them from getting jobs in the environmental or food sectors. Katie from Farmarama first came across the EcoTalent scheme at a COP26 fringe event. At this event, EcoTalent interns were sharing the experiences they'd had on the scheme and the ideas they'd come up with to improve the food system. One of the presentations was a video testimony from Natalie, who we heard at the start of this episode. It left a real impression on Katie, so we asked Natalie to share her story with us as part of Cultivating Justice. My name is Natalie. I'm 26 years old. I am autistic and I'm also non-binary, so I'm part of the LGBTQ plus community, as well as the neurodivergent community. I am an advocate for the rights and needs being met for autistic people. How did you get involved with Feedback and specifically with the Eco Talent Project? So I wasn't in work. I could not find work that was like autism friendly or able to meet my needs specifically. But also I didn't really know much about my needs either. So it was like they need me to help them, but I couldn't. So I wasn't actively looking for work or anything. I thought I'm just not supposed to be in the world of work. And I had come to terms with that. But I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw an advert for an internship for young adults in my age group who didn't need any prior experience, didn't need a CV, and specifically was aimed towards young people who had barriers that were like stopping them from entering the world of work. I was like, I've never heard of any internship or any job that describes me so well. So that's what really drew me. And I was like, I have to go for this. I don't care what the job is. I'm going to go for this because they could really open some doors for me. Just help me out, you know, get into some mainstream work or something. So I was just like, let's do it. And then, yeah, I got an email back saying that they wanted to interview me. And it was for a job on a farm. Now, I've never really had any interest in like, well, not really interest, like I've never really thought about it. When my food is produced or farming or anything like that. I live in London. It didn't even occur to me that there were farms in London. So I was just like, okay, this is interesting. I like animals, so can't be too hard, right? (laughs) And then I got the job. How did you feel when you found out that you'd got that job? Can you just tell us a bit about that moment? I was ecstatic. I have never been prouder of myself in my whole entire life because I had just come to the conclusion that I'll never be able to enter the world of work and I'll just have to be on benefits for the rest of my life. And it seemed like a quite bleak and quite sort of down and out future like you know there is nothing to strive for there is nothing to work towards because no one wants to employ me and then feedback just came along and was like you got the job I was like I cannot believe it cannot believe tell us what actually happened then when you when you started the job so the first day was a bit of a shit show I should have gone to the farm before my first day I should have been introduced to the staff and told exactly what my timetable was going to be, what time I was going to eat lunch, what time I had to arrive and what the process is. You know, once you get through the gates in the morning, this is where you have to report to and this is what you're going to be expected to do. You know what I mean? Like 
uh, some sort of introduction to the job. I didn't know I needed that at the time, so I didn't ask for it. So when I first showed up, my anxiety disorder kicked in because my autism was screaming at me. You know, there is no structure. You don't know who you're meant to be working with. You don't know what's expected of you. And I, I had a panic attack. So I ran back to my car and I drove home <laughs> um, and cried. In my head, I was like, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I knew I was going to fuck it up. So I felt really crap about myself, you know. And then I spoke to James and he was like, it was set up bad. Just to note that James is James Turner, feedback project manager. He was sorry, like we was all we was all sorry for each other. And he was like, but I really want this to work. And I was like, I, I didn't want to give up. I really wanted this to work. So me, James really worked together to work out a plan. The plan that me and James came up with was communicated to the manager of the farm. And the manager of the farm agreed. But when I went on my new start date, she hadn't actually put anything in place for me, what we agreed on. There was no consideration at all in terms of my needs. And it was just as hard as the first day that I had a panic attack. There was no structure. You know, I remember <laughs> on the first day, it was home time, but I didn't know it was home time. No one had told me, Natalie, this is the time you're finishing. And then the manager came like, up to me and she was like, what are you still doing here? And I was like, you told me to clean up the chickens. I'm doing what you instructed me to do. Well, it's time for you to go home, so go on. And it was like so like abrupt, like there's no transition. I need transition time. And that was every day. Most of what I go through is, I would say, quite commonplace. Like I know every autistic person is different, but we do share some traits. And I think mine was quite well-known traits as autism can go. I was actually um, unwell while I was working at the farm. For about three weeks, I'd been going to the hospital and having biopsies and stuff. I was not eating properly or drinking properly. Um, I'd just gone through a grievance. Uh, my cousin, unfortunately, passed away. So all of that, <laughs> plus working, you know, eight o'clock till whatever it was, I can't even remember now, doing like manual labour on the farm. And I was just mentally and physically exhausted. I was pushing myself and pushing myself. And this one day, I was tired. Um, I'd had enough with the manager, like really had enough. I had been given a project to do that was about four days long. I had to clear out this barn, paint the walls, jet wash the floor, and repaint the floor. It was my job, and I was so proud of it. It was mainly me on my own, sorting out this barn, and it looked amazing when I was almost done. And so four days on a trot, I was doing that job. It was very clear to me what needed to be done. I loved it, it really, yeah, itched the right spots in my autism. <laughs> like, it was everything I needed. And then on the last day, I was so almost done like I had maybe an eighth left to do and I've been working on this floor for about three days straight and then the manager came in and she was like oh you're doing amazing I was like thank you she was like but you don't need to do this last bit I said sorry she's like you've been working too long on this project I want you to leave it now just like that so abrupt you know you're leaving the barn you're not to finish the job and 
I just, I shut down. She left and I just stood there, couldn't move. I was stuck in transition mode. Like I, I, I have to finish, I have to finish, I have to finish. But then my autism's like, you have to listen to the authority. So it's like, I just was frozen. I was frozen for about 25 minutes, stuck in the same spot, like a solid block of ice and just crying to myself. I was like, do you know what? You do not care about me. And you've made that very clear. You don't care what my autism means for me. You don't want to put the time in to learn about what my autism means for me. And you've made that perfectly clear. I now have no respect for you. I was done at that point with her. But I still worked on the farm, right? So a few days down the line, I was working with my colleague and he was great. I mean, we really got along. He had a really bad day. I, I still don't know what it was about, but he had such a short fuse. We was in a muddy field and the job was to clear out this shed. But I was physically done. I couldn't even lift the wheelbarrow out of the mud. So I didn't really tell anyone that I was ill. So that's my bad. And I didn't tell him that I was grieving as well. Maybe I should have in hindsight. But anyway, so yeah, I just didn't have the strength to carry this wheelbarrow. And he's getting really frustrated with me. He's like, if you don't want to be here, go home. I'm shaking with exhaustion. And now I'm just angry and I don't care now. So we had a fallout and I could feel a build up. And I was like, ah, oh, I know this build up. An autism meltdown is coming and I am not in the place to be having an autism meltdown right now. I was so upset. I couldn't breathe. I was crying so hard. I ran to the car park and then I realised I left my cardigan in the field with my car keys in. It's starting to rain. So I just sat on the gravel against my tyre of my car <laughs> in the rain and just cried. I must have been crying really loud. I tend to do that when I'm in a meltdown. I'm not really thinking about how I'm presenting to everyone else. I'm just in the moment, you know? So my manager comes out, of course, and she's like, Natalie, you can't be behaving like this. Uh, someone's gonna see. When I'm in a meltdown, I cannot verbally communicate. I cannot use my words. I'm not really thinking either. It's like I'm not in control of my body, really. Yeah, my meltdowns can be quite rough in the sense that I will be... Trigger warning. Um, I will be punching my thighs. I will be hitting my head. I could be kicking the floor, kind of, um, screaming. And then just crying and stuff. And my meltdowns can look brutal. It can look like I'm in some really deep distress, which I am, you know. And I am non-verbal. I cannot communicate with you when I'm in a full meltdown. And honestly, I can't really follow instructions or anything like that. As I say, I'm not really in control of my body, right? So she's telling me that I should leave the car park and go inside. But that's just not doable. I'm here now. I'm having the meltdown. And she starts grabbing my arms, my wrists. She's like, come on, we have to go inside. People can't see this. She was embarrassed of me. The rules are, you do not touch me when I'm having a meltdown at all. You don't try and move me unless I'm in a, a, you know, a place of danger, you know, which I wasn't. 
And she's like, stop crying. This is ridiculous. You sh why are you crying like this? And then she starts threatening with, if you don't calm down right now, I'm going to call the ambulance. Not my parents, the ambulance. Now, the problem with this, right, is if an ambulance comes and they see me in this distressful state and she doesn't say anything, they're not going to think autism. Why would that be their first guess? They'll think this is a mental health disorder that we can't deal with this. The police are going to have to deal with this. So then what will happen next is they call the police. This whole situation has now become absolutely terrifying. I've heard of stories of autistic people having meltdowns and the police have restrained them so hard that they've suffocated them and they've died in the hands of the police because they're having a meltdown. It just scared the absolute living daylights at me. I don't know how I managed it and I can't even remember how it got there, but my phone was on the floor and I managed to like press like one button or something and my dad's mobile was being called from my phone. So he could hear the commotion, me screaming, her shouting and all this. I just let him hear what was going on, hoping, hoping that he would just come and save me. <laughs> and yeah, and then 15 minutes later, my dad in his Beamer comes <laughs> running into the car park. I was like, yes, that's when I really let go. So my parents sat down on the floor with me and rode it out with me. After I calmed down, I got into my dad's car, we sat for a little bit, and then my colleague who shouted at me earlier came over, and he was like, I'm so sorry, Natalie. He was like, I am having a bad day, and I did take it out on you a little bit. He was like, don't leave. Please come back to the farm tomorrow. And I was like, no, yeah, I will. I will come back. <laughs> no, I didn't go back. <laughs> I got into office work instead, which is so much better. What are some of the things that your employer could have done differently? Things that could have gone differently is me, my feedback manager and the farm manager could have all had a meeting together specifically about what my autism means for me of what I knew at that point. What could be put in place to help assist and accommodate to make my job doable? Not just autism, you know, my anxiety disorder as well and depression. Those things play a real big part in what I'm able to do day to day. Yeah, and then just sit and work together and work out exactly what needs to be done. But even if we did do that, somehow I feel like it still wouldn't have worked because every single person would need to be on board. So it's not just about what accommodations can be put in place. It's also about the people you're working with. You know, if the people are ignorant and don't want to learn, or want to support then they're not going to and you're not going to have those things put in place no matter how much you beg which is discrimination you know and it is totally against the equality act 2010 but unless you, you report them or do something about it nothing's going to change you know what i mean the thing is i didn't have the knowledge back then i think that is such an important thing to keep saying there was something that you mentioned in your video testimony which I think was called the pie plan can you tell us a bit about that what is the pie plan when I was working at feedback feedback were really interested in how they could do better to support autistic colleagues or anyone who they're going to end up working with who are autistic and I invented this system where if they employed someone who is autistic 
they could use this thing called the Pi Plan, which is Personal Inclusion and Equity Plan. The autistic colleague and their manager will sit together with this form. And it's a contract, basically, that the employer agrees to put in these set accommodations that the autistic person needs. And they will write it all down. So the employer can't say, oh, well, you didn't mention that. It's there in black and white, it's on paper. And it will have emergency contacts written down so they can't threaten with ambulances and shit. It will have agreed adaptions, provisions and alternative communication methods that the autistic person needs. What to do in the case of a meltdown or sensory overload. Uh, What to do in the case of a shutdown. The autistic colleague can give permission of who can view that document. Can it be just the managers or can it be colleagues as well? Or even external organisations, things like that. And then there can be set dates of when the pipeline will be reviewed. Because obviously, if the autistic person doesn't know their needs, they can learn as they go along on the job and they say, oh, I need to add this. Oh, I don't need this anymore. You can change that. And then eventually you'll get to a, a full, clear understanding of what adaptations are needed and what to do to help support the autistic person. And then the manager or managers don't have an excuse to let that autistic person down. I think people really forget that just because we are autistic, that we are capable of critical thinking. Just really please listen to actually autistic people and actually autistic voices. Zoe, how did you feel hearing from Natalie? Um, Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first heard it, just being like stunned, like as it unfolded, just being like, oh my God, like Natalie's been through so much during an internship that posed itself as being so positive and inclusive. It's so clear from her uh, reaction to getting that job, like how rare an opportunity that is Mm -hmm. and so then for it to be so disappointing was was really really hard to hear but I think what really comes out of that is that not only do we need sort of like active diversity positive recruitment in our sector which is so undiverse in so many ways across all sorts of intersections simply like recruiting people isn't enough you also need to have the functioning accommodations and there's work to put in and there's like care to put in. Absolutely. I think that the lack of consideration for what makes a workplace sustainable for humans to work in, (laughs) it's really neglected. Yeah, I think there's sort of an expectation that you're you're fit, strong, fast, healthy. You're not going to take many sick days or holiday days or there's just such a like toxic culture of of needing to be 
fit in all ways, which is so unrealistic. And we really need to build resilience into our sector in terms of the people that comes from like creating enabling environments. Yeah. And there's this whole like idea maybe in farming that economic pressures mean that you can't make those accommodations, but that's such a cop out. Totally. This culture of overworking for the good cause. I mean, I think that's the idea and it permits a lot of like bad boss behavior as well. Like how Natalie's manager was so unaccountable to anyone and was able to abuse power so horribly, even with, you know, that policy in place that James and Natalie had figured out together. Yeah, I think that thing of a slightly informal workplace, like Mm. not quite clear expectations and sort of blurred relationships, which are both professional and unprofessional, can lead to some really complicated situations. And I think having clear expectations laid out, having a contract, having a really clear job description, little things like that, which are just normal in the working world, but apparently not normal in agroecological farming, just can prevent so many issues. And also, I think that sort of brings us on a bit to the need for for a union for employees mm. and and other people working on the land who aren't landowners or bosses because there's nowhere to go with those issues at the moment. I think it's really important to create some benchmarks and some frameworks for discussing these these issues and to try and create some change. Do you want to explain a bit though about what the union is and where it's at? Sure. Yeah. So. Um... A bunch of people have been talking for many years (laughs) about the need for collectivization of workers in the growing and farming sector. Specifically, I'm thinking of the good food sector because that's where I'm working. There are networking organizations already in place, like the Land Workers Alliance and the Organic Growers Alliance, but there's none so far that focus on workers' rights. A lot of people are starting to feel frustrated with the sustainable food sector because it's not sustainable to work within. Rates of pay aren't fair often. Often there's an over-reliance on volunteer labor. There's often way too much experience needed for very poorly paid or poor conditioned jobs. And there's a lot that we can do about it when we collectively act, but not a lot we can do about it when we're individuals. So at the moment, we're at the stage of genuinely just gathering people We don't have a formal name yet. That will be coming soon. And we also don't have a public speaking policy yet. And I'm speaking on behalf of myself. I'm part of the coordinating group, which is still open to be joined by anyone. If you're interested and this could be relevant to you, like in the show notes, there's a way to get in touch. We're at the stage where we're having regular meetings and figuring out how to build power together. Outside. Outside. 
Last night, inside, you dreamt you were a butterfly. Outside, inside, outside, spirits soaring. Inside, outside, you were a butterfly. Inside, outside, and did not know about you. Inside, outside. Inside, outside, inside. When all of a sudden you awoke, inside, inside, you are you with all your wits about you. Outside, outside, now, inside. You don't know whether you are you. Who dreams they are a butterfly? Inside. Outside. Inside. Or a butterfly who dreams they are you. Inside. Outside. Inside. Outside. That was a clip from a performance by artist Sin Y. Kin, commissioned by the Queer Ecologies Collective. Maggie Cheney is the general manager and one of the co-founders of Rocksteady Farm. Rocksteady is a queer-run, cooperative vegetable farm in upstate New York. It's rooted in social justice, food access and farmer training. Maggie's been involved with food and farming for their whole life in urban and rural settings, and they've been involved in so many great projects. Sam Siva from Land in Our Names spoke to Maggie about the role of care in land work and in work more generally. Sam started by asking Maggie whether centering care could be one way that we queer the ways we relate to work and to each other. Our staff were 100% queer and trans, so all of us come with needs that might be a little bit more, I don't know, heightened <laughs> than a farm that might have all cis white folks who are men. You know, like in the United States, there's so many structural layers that are against BIPOC people and queer and trans folks that just baseline, we're coming into a space that are, you know, filled with people who have a, more needs in general. And I think as Rocksteady's kind of gone on its path, you know, we're in our seventh year. That's been very apparent that there are layers to how we support our staff that are above and beyond maybe a space that has less kind of layered identities. So in that way, the querying of our farm is providing the care that we think people need. And given that people that are in our team are very biracial, like multi-class, multi-gendered space, And I think in general, queer folks tend to center care and mutual aid a little bit more than other people. I think that's a wonderful thing about queer people is that often we haven't been able to find our needs met in 
mainstream society. So we've had to create mutual aid systems in all different ways. So that's just a part of our culture because of who works for us. You know, everyone is a little bit more tuned into that type of support where we support each other, we find resources that other people have, we network our communities. But then there's also just like a heightened awareness that care is just very important, you know, just to kind of be okay in the world. Like our baseline just needs more support generally. Um, and that's okay. And that's not to say that people who are not queer also don't need the same supports. You know, I think that everyone in agriculture should get more support because it's really difficult field of work. It's incredibly challenging. So I think that there's a lot of learning that can be had from the way that we do it at Rocksteady that is very much applicable to any workplace in agriculture or not. Mm-hmm. There's also like a lot of work that we do around creating a healthy work environment which feels safe for people to communicate their needs both for themselves but also for you know how they want to handle conflicts or just in general like if we're also working with people who have a lot of different learning styles and possibly learning differences and overlapping with communication that we have to do on an ongoing basis as a collective and like with our farm we're doing loads of communication you know very team oriented and there's lots of different managers and it's a complex project so there's so many ways that there can be miscommunications and conflicts and and I think that's true on any farm conflicts just happen. So we put a lot of energy into trying to like give people more skills essentially to try to communicate with each other and then also defining as a group what is supportive, safe communication look like? What is the workplace culture look like to people? What are the important values that we all hold and we want to uplift? So we do work with outside facilitators to support that work. And as a farm, that's important because I think there are a lot of people who want that type of workspace, but don't necessarily have the skills internally to do it themselves, especially if it's a production farm, which is incredibly stressful and very tightly time managed. There's an assumption that you just do not have time to do anything other than production. And I've definitely been in that place myself as a farmer you know there have been moments where you're just like I do not have time to deal with this conflict and so we're trying to create a culture which invites people to address conflicts as soon as possible and feel like they have the skills to do that and they have the time to do that and they have support if they need it so that things don't get put off and then explode at some other point in the future So it's been like really well worth it for us to dive so deep into this work with the outside facilitators. Yeah, and I feel like people really lean into the work that we're doing with them is Relational Uprising is the organization that we work with. And I think for them, that feels like a form of care. And it's like, oh, you really care about my well-being at this farm and show that care by like paying for people to get training and facilitation and 
group process and storytelling and all these things that kind of build relationship resiliency because we just want the whole system to be healthier. And I think a lot of farmers put energy towards the health of the farm, especially in sustainable agriculture. The narrative is like soil health and, you know, ecological practices and climate safe, everything. But that is like completely undone if your humans are unhealthy and hurt. Like, I just don't think that they should be separated. So I think it, that's a hard decision for farmers to make to put actual funding and finances into that work. But the same way that we are like making calls about what tractor we should get or implement we should buy or if we need to pay for a particular lawyer for something like the same way we're really really prioritizing the facilitators that we work with and paying them well and paying our staff well and paying for like amazing lunches during that time to just kind of balance it all out and I think especially for like not just farm workers, but also farm managers and owners, right? There's this perception that if you're someone who's on the higher end of a hierarchy or an owner, that you can just do it all. And oftentimes those folks are really struggling mentally because of the stress of the position they're on and they can inflict the most harm because of the power that they hold. And if that's not addressed and they're not getting the support that they need, that's creating a very unhealthy system. And I think outside facilitation can support the people in power so that they can hold that power responsibly and not put harm on the people who are within the farm, which is like incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Cultivating, Cultivating, justice. Cultivating, justice. Cultivating, justice. Cultivating justice. It's so nice to hear about places that are really putting care at the heart of what they do. Yeah, it sounds like a really great place to work first of all um what I really appreciate about what we've just heard is that Rocksteady sounds like it will have still challenges to work there I'm sure I think any workplace does but there are ways to hold people accountable who have more power within that system for people with less power and I think that's really central to care in a workplace yeah, I think that just putting resources into care, what Maggie's been describing, is just so unusual in workplaces in a capitalist system. We talked earlier a lot about workers and how to put care into that system and sustainability into that system for workers, but it's also about the farm owners and managers who are under loads of stress and actually how they need to care for themselves and if the people at the top aren't doing that then there's not going to be that example for everyone to follow or feel like enabled to like work according to their needs and I feel like there's so many burnt out overworked farmers out there totally. I'm just <laughs> nodding along the whole time right now we're expecting all of us to burn out on cycle and get sick whereas if bosses and managers are affirmed that they also need to be taken care of and respected you know their their energy and time respected for like needing rest and a life outside of this that's beneficial for all of us and it means that this work is inclusive of more people who want to do it 
including me. I don't want to give up the rest of my life for this anymore, you know? I think it's also about the stories we tell in land work and what we put on a pedestal. There's sort of a bad culture of being like, oh, who's worked the most hours and who's the most tired? And and actually, we should be <laughs> celebrating, you know, a business model that supports work-life balance or that, like, yeah, integrates rest or farmers that manage to take two weeks holiday in the summer. Like, that's great. Yeah, it's just changing that that sort of lens a bit. I think for a lot of people, the food system we want to see does involve a lot more labor. And like for that to be possible and true, like this labor should be well compensated and it should involve enough rest, not enough rest so that you can just get back on the horse the next, not literal horse, just to burst anyone's bubble. Unless you're really lucky, you probably won't be on a real horse. You just have to get back on your knees usually <laughs> and harvest some more chard the next day. This work is appealing in theory and in practice can really squish you down if it doesn't take into account that you still have needs. So much of this work is about changing a system and still actually, in reality, fitting totally within it, being as productive as possible and giving our labor and time fully to this work. There are so many people interested in this work and there's so many people who have visions of wanting this work to be good. Surely there's enough energy there and enough people wanting to shift how we do work in general and sustainable food-related work that we could collectively figure out more solutions to these problems because they're the same. Farms like Rocksteady are already giving great examples of how we can address some of these problems. And there's organizations that are set up that we're often in contact with that can actually help facilitate this. So yeah, basically, I think there's a lot of collective problem solving that can happen and the networks are already in place and the solutions are even there. It's just about making us together like feel like we are allowed to start trying them obviously we're in this capitalist system where you do have to produce enough to stay afloat and you do have to sell your veg but also there are creative solutions and there are ways that we can try and build in care and rest into our systems where we can and it's it's a process and it's just that thing of not getting blindsided by economics and the busyness of the season and forgetting forgetting the people I guess so listening to Maggie it's just like really inspiring to hear about how they're really enacting that there and I'd like to see more of that across farms in the UK and everywhere. I totally agree with that I think challenging burnout culture and putting in place ways that we can work out solutions that don't keep that cycle going it's also to the advantage of an organization to be able to retain their workers you know it's caring for your organization as well I honestly think that it's the thing that's been missed out of the conversation amongst so much of the the sustainable food and farming sector in the UK is like how can this work be good for all of us in the long term not just for the environment care isn't obviously isn't just a queer thing but actually like queer communities are a really great place to learn from there's so many like networks of sort of mutual aid and support and actually that's a really great thing that I feel like the rest of society could get some takeaways from
I'm affirmed when I see individuals like myself taking up some space. Like, my affirmation is not personal on my own <laughs> individual merits. Like, if I see one of my trans-sibs thriving in horticulture and schooling people on pronunciation, like, that for me is affirming. I think community has helped me with the affirmation that we're on the right path. Sometimes it feels like a disarray, sometimes it's manic, but community is definitely the affirming party. My queer identity interacts with my relationship to the living world in the sense that queer to me means really that I don't really relate to the world as a binary place, you know, with a, a right and a wrong and a male and a female. Yeah, it's more, it's more blurry than that, isn't it? Um, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't accept this mainstream mm, sort of society's version of the normative personally and I think that my queer identity really kind of forces me to to question assumptions around those things often which is I think really really important yeah I think nature is exactly the same it's really diverse really fucking queer which is great I think, like queer individuals, plants develop in ways that sometimes have stars to tell. Not all plants adhere to the binaries, not all plants do what we expect them to do. But we're not just talking plants, we're talking non-human beings, nature, everything. And I just think, you know, if, if you're ever, as a queer person, feeling, you know, that you're too queer, that you're too something that society doesn't really want you to be, then basically you can just look at nature and it'll be doing it. It'll have been doing it for, you know, trillions of years. So it's kind of old news for nature. I just think once you start to explore nature, the natural world, is, it's just really naturally out and proud. And, well, that's just, that's just great, isn't it? I think that's great. The Cultivating Justice podcast series is made by Sam Siva, Abby Rose, Dora Taylor, Katie Revel, Nadia Maidy and me, Hester Russell. And thanks to Zoe Miles for co-hosting this episode with me. This episode featured conversations with Natalie Tamburini and Maggie Cheney. Reflections from Sasha, aka Mind Your Own Plants, and Anna Barrett. Performance art by Sin Y. Kin. And music by Jazz Butt, aka Guest, and Harry Biles. Our series music is by Taha Hassan. Thank you to our funders, Farming the Future and the Roddick Foundation, and a big thank you to everyone who's contributed in any way. 
visit landworkersalliance.org.uk forward slash cultivating dash justice to find out more.